one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman Tory Party Conference Special Edition. I am back from the final nail in her coughing. And I watched it on television where I really got to see it in full 360-degree cough-o-vision. Plus, we answer You Ask Us... Are Labour's policies fit for government? Stephen, you are literally just back from Manchester. This is very exciting. And to apologise to our listeners, I have got a Theresa May tribute cold. Uh, never let it be said that I do not have my finger on the pulse. So uh, apologies if I sound a bit mucusy this week. How was it? On on the whole, the mood started as you would expect, quite quite flat. Them obviously feeling discombobulated because it's it's not just that they they didn't think that Jeremy Corbyn. That it's not they just they thought he was unelectable. The idea of him was laughable, was unthinkable. It's so it literally it's like um, discovering that the world is not the shape that you think it is, right? So so there there was that sort of element. I well, I think the, the difficulty that most people are grappling with. I'm going to write about this tomorrow actually, but is that their big problem is that they now know that he's not an electoral insurance policy. They know that Labour are inches away, thanks to their very good result, where they basically undid the damage of 2015. They're inches away from being able to form a government next time. And they know that you cannot have a Brexit without some form of... Breaking some Brexit eggs. ...economic dislocation. So you basically have a lot of people in the Cabinet and Minister who basically have a kind of like, well, hopefully something will come up kind of view. Um, In a way, though, they must be... I know that the early election was a disaster but if you take the counterintuitive take of what would have happened had they not gone for an election they would have had to have an election in 2020 then I think they would have lost that election decisively if you look at the current trajectory right I I mean I think the early election was 100% the right call Um, it's just that what you probably would have done was run it very differently not a president well as Theresa May admitted in her speech okay let's talk about the speech because you saw it in the hall I saw it on television and these things often experience very differently and I'm also really interested in how people will experience it who see only a kind of a couple of clips because I don't think that you quite get the horror from the clips of the fact that she started coughing on what page 5 out of 16 of the speech uh, and you knew there was so much left to go and it went on for 20 or 30 minutes of this painful kind of hawking honestly for I, I I honestly feel like I've come back from that speech maybe five, ten years older. I have a recurring nightmare where maybe I'm giving a talk or I'm trying to warn someone that they're falling under the thing and then, and then my mouth closes The tickle. Up. I can't Oh, speak. yeah, OK. And so it was one of those things, like, wow, I am literally watching my own nightmare 
I mean, other than the protester handing her a maths GCSE paper, it could not have been more like a horrific scene from my own or, subconscious. Um, one of your like suddenly realizing that one of your front teeth is really loose. That's one. That, and that's a kind of classic recurrent nightmare. If, if one of her front teeth had fallen out during the speech, that would have been the kind of ultimate. Then she's got the gone for the nightmare hat trick. But there was that kind of sense of like, oh, there's there's loads still to go. Because obviously, because we had some of the extracts pre-briefed, right? You're just like, but you haven't even got to a bit where you could plausibly be talking about housing. So, you, you know, there's, 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 there's a lot of, and it was, oh, it was, oh, it was so, it was so, it was just. So I think the really interesting so thing sad. is the fact that they didn't, the Tories didn't then try and do a kind of media backfill spin operation of like, uh, typical MSN only want to talk about the coughing, don't want to talk about the substance. So there was at least an acknowledgement that no, really, really, she, like there was only. There was only, I'd say, about 12 minutes of the speech pre-Heckler and pre-Cough that was undisturbed. And also that the policy announcements, which are pretty heavily trailed, actually don't really add up to much. So we've got this new social housing policy that is equivalent to 5,000 new houses a year, which is unfortunately not enough by any stretch of imagination versus the 10 billion pounds for help to buy that which will help stoke demand and therefore will way out cantilever this the organ donation story unfortunately jeremy corbyn getting to go first completely managed to to scupper that right by saying this is what a labor policy would do so she looks like by following that and making the organ donation opt out is not kind of as great a a thing she wanted and then what was the other i think i I mean i think it's a good policy but get wrong is that in some, yeah, actually, that's the thing. So many Tory MPs are like, oh, you know, we can't out Corbyn Corbyn on housing. Uh, actually, like, most people vote out of either their self interest or their idea of their self interest, right? So it gives the Labour Party a sense in it for making the political weather, which is good for their internal morale. But actually, on any issue which moves votes and the Conservatives can co opt, people get to have like their dream, which is to change without changing. Do you think organ donation is going to change votes? I mean, I think it's an unequivocally the correct decision to do. Like, I am, I'm an organ donor. You can have my corneas. Should I die in a Jeremy Corbyn related accident at any point? I think but it's the kind. I'm of just not sure it makes. It is a vote mover. I think it's the kind of thing which it can be a vote mover. So, like, Citizens of Nowhere, right? Did not move any votes on its own. Mm. But it became emblematic, and it stuck in a lot of people, and it immediately upset a lot of people who had already, through Amber Rudd's like, we're going to have a list of foreigners. Actually, and then when later on, when she was refusing to say that Donald Trump should stop saying that Sadiq Khan was a secret Sharia law baddie, I guess it, it does. Became, be, once the confirmation bias kind of sets up, then yeah. and the thing about organ donation is it, yeah. So what, what what were the three groups of people who voted for the Conservatives in 2015, but against them in 2017? affluent ethnic minorities, the socially liberal and the young. And obviously the the overlaps between those groups are quite large. And so things like organ donation and actually taking housing or mental health funding seriously, which they nodded to but are not, in fact, doing, all form a mood music. That's true, because Theresa May can sit next in the next election, well, not that she will fight the next election, but whoever fights the next election can sit next to an adorable child who's just had a heart transplant, who's only alive thanks to the Conservatives, right? That is a kind of quite a powerful statement to make. So I take your point. If you're going to try and sell a narrative of compassion, then that's probably quite a good one. Not to veer away from the speech, but I, I can't think of that many things to say apart from the policy announcements weren't that exciting and it was just an epic horror show that just got worse and worse and actually kind of went out the other side of horror to a place where if any one of those things had gone wrong it would have been a bad political speech but actually the fact that you had the heckler then the coughing then the letters falling off it actually just took it into a place of such outrageous badness that it actually almost you feel bad about criticizing it so i wonder if we could talk about did you watch the mini pops tory bit beforehand where gavin williamson the chief whip introduced some of their little 
Yep. Baby Tories. I, I did. I saw them introduce some of the the so wee the wee Tories. They were a lot more able to talk like normal humans than the cabinet, right? That this, is a subplot, isn't this it? Was, this was a much more interesting conference for a lot more reasons, a lot of reasons than than Labour was. I mean, partly, of course, because you know unhappy parties are always more interesting than happy ones. But their slight difficulty is that they have a lot of you know normal seeming you know human. Particularly, actually, in the twenty fifteen and twenty seventeen intake, there is a wide acknowledgement that the housing stuff they have announced today is not anywhere near enough right and they just have a much better idea of what the problem is and what some of the solutions is and so on with the asterisks which we should talk about later about brexit but their difficulty is as as one mp said to me there are a lot of bed blockers in the in the cabinet right sitting on really nice fat little majorities and who who don't want anything you know who don't want anything bad about i mean you wrote about this in your column when you're now very prescient looking column of last week right which was about the fact that they the tories are not taking jeremy corbyn seriously as evidenced by them worrying more about kind of tory shires and the green belt and nimbies than they are about you know people under 50 really who can't who are still in private rented accommodation yeah i was really interested so paul masterton i thought gave a nice little speech he's one of the new scottish tories Kemi Badnock, for all that she, who's the MP for Saffron Walden, for all that I, my hackles went up when she started slagging off all women shortlists, which is pretty cheeky, given that there's something that Cameron looked at consistently but never thought he could get past constituency associations. I mean, also, actually, the Tories say they don't have all women shortlists. If you actually look at a lot of the kind of three-name... You know, well, they had like the like... A-list, which was kind of a sort of shortcut to getting more women in, didn't they? And actually, who was it? I think it, well, maybe it was even Kemi gave a shout-out to my... Battleaxe Laugh, Baroness and Jenkin, who found a woman to win with Theresa May. I mean, they have done affirmative action, essentially, but being the Tories, they can't ever admit it because it obviously makes people very upset about meritocracy. So, I mean, I've actually written about... Well, I've used the Badenoch speech in... Actually, in one of, like, the, the most terrible... It is now seared on my subconscious. I actually bumped into Kemi Badenoch on the train back at Euston Station from where I have just come. And without the, I was I was thinking like whatever you do, don't say great speech because you're slagging the speech off in the in the eye tomorrow. And then I heard oh. myself go great speech, and the rest of my brain was just like, why do I have to live with you? Like that Peep show when he talks about yeah. studying ancient history, and don't don't say it's all ancient history now. It's all ancient history now. Um, no. But um, the thing about the speech is it was incredibly politically astute if you want a future in the Conservative Party, because she basically was saying to the to the Conservative selectorate, you don't need to feel bad about the fact you're deeply unrepresentative, and actually the real racists are over there in the Oh, yeah, the it was Labour totally Party. like some of my best friends are middle-class white men. And, and, was, and all the middle-class white women were like, yes, we do, it's true, we do do a lot. And it was a really good speech from that basis. However, to zoom out and then ask yourself, what is the Conservative problem? It is that of the two two of the groups that were vital under first-past-the-post to giving them a stable majority, or at the least are vital to giving them a large enough share of seats that a government can't be formed without them, affluent ethnic minorities and social liberals did not vote for them in 2017 and did in 2015, and it's the 2015 Conservative, 2016 Remain, 2017 Labour. How much of that is a Brexit problem, though, that resolves itself by the fact that Brexit will not be over per se, but will at least be... Brexit will never be over. (laughs) Uh, No, uh, but, uh, you know, like, NAFTA was a vote-moving issue in 
the Democratic primaries and the American general election. That is a trade deal which was signed in was agreed in spirit before I was born. Yeah, maybe you're right. Actually, I mean, I thought Philip Hammond's speech was kind of fascinating as well in trying to make people care about the seventies again. I just think the Tories have got some kind of strange brain damage problem where they think that. People can remember the 70s because they can remember the 70s, you know, in an average age. I think their membership is 71. You know, you and I can't remember the 70s. Actually, do you know what? My eldest sister, who's 40, was born in 19... No, hang on a minute. I was going to say my eldest sister is 40. She's not anymore. But I won't tell you how old she is. But anyway, she's born in 1970. There's not much of the 70s she can remember, right? Well, and and also Venezuela. No one's been to Venezuela. But very, people's interest... And I, how many people could point to which reliably, whether or not Venezuela or Peru or Chile, which one is which on a map... It's just this mad invocation of, of places and, and and times that I'd have no emotional resonance with people anymore. Yeah, yeah. and I think like the yeah, and so the, the problem with the the Badenoch speech is that those those things which Labour had been proved wrong on were kind of true about the twenty fifteen election. However, in twenty seventeen, most ethnic minorities did suddenly go actually yeah, like I, I'm talking about people who, from a class or demographic perspective, all ought to vote Conservative, as it were. Mm-hmm who did in 2015, did not in 2017. And they sort of need to wake up to that problem again. Mark Wallace wrote a very good piece for Conservative Home where he was just like, but 36% of people voted for Labour in 1979. The experience of the 1970s was not enough to stop <laughs> people. Like, and, and also, yeah, and I think there, there, are, there are a couple of problems with both the 70s and the Venezuela thing, which is that we actually see this with when you talk about the trade-offs of Brexit. Britain has historically been a very lucky country. A large chunk of people, regardless of how left-wing they are or how right-wing they are, when you say things like there is a really good chance and Brexit could end up in a situation where, like Argentina, Britain becomes rapidly much, much poorer and much more exposed to the whims of global finance, and people go, oh, yeah, I'm sure that's not true. This idea, yeah, like, this that was one of the things that came out of the Boris Johnson yeah. speech, right, is he had a pop specifically at both the FT and The Economist, and I don't know who it was, maybe it was Sir Payne, I can't remember, said on Twitter, what's happening there is that he's having a go at the two organisations that still both have big European bureaus and big foreign staffs, right? They actually have big like networks of correspondents who see the way that the rest of the world sees us. And there was a fascinating thread this morning, someone posted all the reaction from other papers in other languages to Boris Johnson's comment about Certe, right? Which was like, oh, and if they just clean up the dead bodies, lol, you could turn it into Dubai and build a casino there. And, you know, I just think there is this, again, this is kind of collective delusion that because we can't read Spanish and German and in the main, actually even French, because English is such a dominant world language, that no one else pays any attention to our politics either, right? And and also because we just, because we go again, because we can't by and large read those languages, we don't read papers from other countries. So we just don't know how we're seen from abroad. Yeah. And, and people do just have this, like... This sense of like, but Britain couldn't become like Venezuela because Britain's a great nation, right? That, and so there, there are many, many reasons why it doesn't work. I also think, in general, one of the long-term intellectual problems the Conservative Party has, which in some times can be a strength, is it it prefers to think of things in terms of narratives and doesn't like to think of things in terms of structures, right? So it's like, oh, these young people need to put down their iPhones. I mean, one, the I didn't if you're a 45-year-old, and if you're a 45-year-old, you, you on the, in the main, voted for Labour, not the Conservatives. 
you'll glue to your iPhone is, is well, just no, like, well, you know, have you met any 45-year-olds late, r- recently? Well, 45, right ironically, 45-year-olds right, are glued to their iPhones because they're the ones who've got small children and they'd rather spend time on their iPhones than looking at their small children. I'm, and that's not me being offensive. That's actually the research shows that it's not teenagers. Teenagers just want to talk to each other, right? But yeah, or, but I take your point, which is not the idea that if you didn't have an iPhone, which most people need for work or at least some kind of smartphone, then you would mysteriously be able to afford 50 to 100,000 pounds depending on a house. Like, what kind of iPhone crazy jeweled iPhone is it these people are supposed to have Andrea led some anyway so um did you see anyone there that you uh that you ended up rating more after you had seen them yes actually there are a couple of people who I I have left more uh impressed by and I it will be obvious from the first one and I am using the word impressed in a very specific sense pretty Patel actually I think is Ooh, the controversial quiet, the quiet winner of this conference because Basically, the leadership race is going to come down to Amber Rudd and not Amber Rudd. And there are various people on the right of the party who are in the kind of who's going to finish second. And she basically did a speech, was effectively a, hey guys, I exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it, was like it was basically like the political equivalent of like texting like your ex, like you up to much, right? Like, but it was a really effective you up to much ex speech, right? She's got a new very regal haircut. She did like a very good kind of like, you know, we're going to get rid of these foreign aid fat cats, but we're still going to spend money on, you know, poor parts of the world. Now, obviously, if you look at what she's actually doing in Diffid, where she's finding ways to squirrel as much of the foreign aid budget away from actual foreign aid as possible, that's not true. But, you know, she she did a, a good, a very good job in that slot. And one by one, a lot of the other right-wingers are either, I think, peaking too soon. Resmog now exists as, in people's minds as someone they have to block from getting to the final two. Or they are both speaking too soon and making everyone very angry, Boris Johnson. Or what they... about um, Dominic Raab? Oh, Dominic Raab, I think, is still the other person in. But it will be someone from that. From, but that's what I mean. That's yeah. what I would think is the the rival to Pretty Patel in the kind of Brexity, yeah. pr- you know, true right flank. If you're trying to get, you know, winkle out Boris from that flank. Ruth Davidson, how did you feel about her? She got some good press for her. Manchester, or as I call it, the Southern Powerhouse, and then randomly going and serving coffee to people. I don't know what that was about, but... I mean, so I always feel nervous about opinions I have which literally no one else holds, because often there's a really good reason why no one else holds them. So Ruth Davison had a good conference because she's warm, she's funny, she gives good copy, journalists like her, and she spoke to a lot of packed fringes. However, the thing I will say about the packed fringes I saw her at is they had an awful lot of lobbyists who actually back Labour and the Lib Dems in them. Uh, My I, thing I, is that I think she's yeah. probably the journalist's favourite and maybe business's favourite, but is she going to ultimately be the activist's favourite? I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You have to remember every... Uh, when we, I mean, you know, talk to other politicians from other parties and they also say how crazy this is, that essentially an incredibly undemographically representative Tory party membership gets to pick the next leader and therefore you know are you going to get worse i think she described herself as a drippingly wet scottish lesbian um in terms of her european views like will she ever get past that membership as it's currently constituted i I don't think she and and you know clearly when you look at what she's done in scotland that is very impressive it's quite difficult to work out the means by which she goes from being a scottish msp to a contender in the next leadership election or indeed, actually, it's quite difficult to work out the mechanism by which she can leave the Scottish Parliament ever, uh, to be honest. Um, 
I'm, I'm sure she's not trapped in the Scottish part. It's not like she's got a kind of collar that's going to explode when she goes out. But the, the other sort of thing is, is that the thing she does very effectively, and it is, you know, and it's a, it is a good trick, and we shouldn't forget that Annabel Gouldy, who also was kind of like, oh, I'm on the Tory left, you know, I'm sort of a nice warm auntie figure, was not able to successfully do this in the same way. But she has basically had a very good job of going like, you know, effectively doing that mingles thing of like, I'm not a regular mum, I'm a cool mum. I'm not a regular Tory, I'm a cool Tory. But that's because she can triangulate off the big mean Tory in London. Mm. How does that work if... You she, are the big mean you Tory. You are the big mean Tory in London. She's never had to, like, do something bad because she's never been in office. And because of the Scottish electoral system, it is very hard to see how the Scottish Conservatives will ever be in office because who is the party which facilitate which... Yeah, which well, then to go into going coalition, yeah. essentially, with all power sharing, whatever it would be. Yeah, I think that's true. I thought there was a nice moment when Amber Rudd essentially made Boris Johnson stand up for the standing ovation for Theresa May when she was having one of her... Um, cough fits and she kind of basically prodded him into standing up which actually just looked very classy and I think reflects quite well on her so that was something which we didn't see in the hall um, obviously it, I mean it was weird I mean this is where my kind of like own like incredibly like oh people coming together communities it's very then it, it was quite powerful in the hall the experience of them all basically like kind of like being she's like going, she's, she's, not, she's not heavy she's my leader uh, kind <laughs> of like stand you know kind of standing up to effectively applaud her through her coughing fit yeah I thought that that's the that's what I mean about kind of the speech going through the gaff zone and out the other side is that actually there was that moment where you just think they all just thought God, what a trooper. I'm really glad that's not me. I mean, I know ultimately that's probably a lethal thing to think about somebody who's prime minister. Like, oh, oh yeah. Deborah Matinson always says in the moment she knew them it was over was when the focus group started to stop saying about Gordon Brown, I hate him, he sold the gold to I feel sorry for him. And she is, I think, dangerously close to tipping from voters going, I don't like her. So she's a wounded gazelle leaver. I feel know. sorry for her. Because I've really noticed, you know, journalists, including journalists who I would say are, you know, hate her have said to me at various points oh you know I'm, I'm starting to feel a bit sorry for her i struggle to think how the daily mail which has always been very pro theresa may will try and get a pro theresa may front page out of that tomorrow well, uh, i think that it, i mean i think, suspect they'll focus on bbc prank man in you know invades speech how was security allowed to happen but that's sort of reflective of the fact that they can't find anything nice to say about the speech I mean, they might actually just decide to go for housing revolution yeah but they hate the housing revolution i mean any any kind of yeah I mean have you have you seen how they feel about the also they mind you they did a pretty swift U-turn on energy price caps from when uh, Ed Miliband did them to when um, the Tories announced them who would you say is your villain of conference villain of conference um, I mean it kind of depends on your perspective I mean I would say from another perspective also pretty Patel uh, <laughs> because she's quietly finding ways to smother Diffid but um from a conservative perspective, uh, it has to be Boris Johnson. He successfully made Tory infighting the story of Labour conference and Tory conference. That P45 gag, right, who is it from Boris Johnson, right? He, he has successfully reopened the question of Theresa May's future. And he has made, I mean, obviously Brexit was always politically painful for them, but he's just heightened a lot of their difficulties. And I think that is why he has also probably had the worst conference of uh, any conservative politician. The New Statesman's new culture podcast, The Back Half, has just released its third episode. In this one, hosts Tom Gatty and Kate Mossman talk about Morrissey's UKIP outburst and David Simon's new TV show, The Juice. 
they also celebrate the non-anniversary of the Garbage Pail Kids trading cards, which were, fun fact, actually designed by the graphic novelist Art Spiegelman. Search for The Back Half in iTunes or any podcast app to subscribe and stay tuned at the end of our show to hear an extract. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... <coughs> you Ask Us. Our question is from Bernard. After the Labour Party conference, is there any evidence that the party has done the policy heavy lifting to form a coherent platform to govern? I know they have many eye-catching slash watering soundbites, but is there any depth? Oh, that's a really interesting one. And I saw a good tweet by um, Eddie Mayer Hagen, who writes for The Guardian, saying, strange, isn't it, that, you know, all this story has been Tory fighting for so long and they're still polling at 42%. And I think that is really something that's really worth taking on board actually is that the two main parties i think both polling about 40 points so, so they you know within a margin of error i think labor have been ahead the last couple of weeks but actually the tory ratings have not plunged precipitously right in the way that you might think people always say that they hate divided parties so i think there is a danger and i think i definitely felt it a little bit at labor conferences a kind of sense of complacency but in a way a sort of forgivable one because it's the you know autumn after a summer in which they really thought they were going to get walloped and they didn't and also they were because of a feeling that the next election is probably quite a long way away and they've therefore got a bit more breathing space. But I do think there is a problem about the fact that they've got some really eye-catching policies, as you say, but actually what's their answer to housing? It's not a million miles better than the Tories offer. Like, I just think housing, I know, you know, I feel like you and me and John and people like that have been housing hipsters, right? Because we've been saying for God knows how many years now, like, hey, you know, what's a really big problem. Young people can't buy a house. And and it's been, you know, not to get too up on my kind of MSM bias high horse, but it's been difficult always because the people who run newspapers and commission TV shows and book you for, you know, producers and stuff like that are generally people from who have bought a house, right? They generally own a house. I always remember thinking... A couple of years ago, about going on Question Time, I wanted to go on Question Time and say, like, well, you know, it's all right for everybody on this panel who has probably got one house, maybe two, actually. But how often is someone on Question Time who doesn't have a house, who doesn't own a house? And now there are weirdly some young MPs, like when she was elected, first of all, Mary Black and some of the other younger MPs who are actually private in the private rental sector. And I think that's a really important change that has happened in politics in the last couple of years because actually it's crept higher and higher up the income band and the age band about people still not being able to buy and therefore feeling all the insecurity that flows from that in Britain it doesn't necessarily have to but here it definitely isn't that so yeah I'm just I'm still not convinced that Labour have fully got their ducks in a row on that problem I don't know what you feel I mean I think kind of it it sort of depends on like which sort of policy area it is right on on education well, the, the fascinating thing is on education, they have a, a, a wide range of office ready if the government collapsed. And then, as I expect, Labour would, would, would win a, uh, an election which emerged from the government collapsing uh, before its due date uh, fairly handily. There is a whole wide range of policies that they would just be able to roll out 
ditto on tax, right? They have a very firm idea there. And they pause universal credit, which is a good policy, but also that would leave them with problems in terms of making their budget work. I think they could do it within the ceilings that John McDonald's got, right? But it'd be tough. Weirdly that... They'd have to pursue quite a lot of benefit cuts. The areas of the policy platform that I think are going to be interesting uh, sources of friction... Uh, over the next five years are one there was an awful lot of uh, on things like fracking and defense the big trade unions being like yeah but you're not going to win so if you want to have a thing about fracking fine so things like that will be interesting to watch um the other thing is oddly enough the one bit of the education policy is not actually that well developed is the notional flagship by the national education service which at the moment basically does kind of seem to be a logo on various other very good but already existing bits of education policy basically uh, there are areas of of uh, public of labor policy which uh, still kind of exist in a fairly kind of nebulous state but this is where i've probably bored listeners with this quote already but this is where i kind of return to the thing that darby said to disraeli when he sent him to the treasury and he was like i don't know anything about the economy and he was like look they give you the figures actually the broad policy outline Labour sort of has in place things like the IPPR's very good Commission on Economic Justice, where they are calling for a kind of reimagining of the economy on the scale of the one which occurred in the 40s and 80s, will provide a lot more of the kind of policy infrastructure, ditto some of the stuff that class is doing about labour markets and stuff the Resolution Foundation is doing on wages. In, in some ways, I think one of the mistakes that part opposition parties make is they kind of are like, oh, you know, but actually when opposition parties start making their own policy as opposed to kind of picking them off the shelf to fit their values, you end up with universal credit, which in theory, as you know, is like the world's loveliest, like... Amazing. If it worked properly, yeah. it would be so much more handy for people just to get one payment and everything is automatically adjusted. But the problem is that, yeah, you have to wait six weeks to claim it and it comes monthly and it comes to the tenants instead of the landlords. So it causes huge amounts of administrative... Yeah, I kind of I think that's reasonable. There's not I I certainly don't think that you'd get an immediate, you know, Labour panic and collapse. I think the big thing that Labour probably needs to take more seriously is the idea that they will come into office during a recession. And actually, what would what would you do? in And it comes back to the value of the war games. Yeah, uh, which which I think we're entirely, entirely right to do. And actually, the, the best moment of Andrew Marr's interview of Theresa May if you remember from Sunday, was when she went, well, and you might have a, a run on the pound. And he went, and what has the pound done Well, in your prime ministership, Mrs., uh, Mrs May? And she went, it fluctuates. And you're like, yeah, it fluctuates down. But I mean, that is the kind of, the, so the ones that final, my final thought, my thing is, was really interesting about this conference, is the way that literally they, the Conservatives cannot talk about Brexit with one another because they cannot admit, so even if you assume Brexit will be a success, right? There will be some people who are will be winners, and not all of them will thank the government. There will some people who will be losers, and all of them will blame the government. There are some people for whom Brexit is a cultural problem, and they will blame the government, and that won't change. And those are all big electoral problems. Before you get into the, there will, there will be some economic dislocation. But I think there's even more than that, and this is something I said before, which is that... I- it's it's the uncertainty of Brexit is the crazy thing. And I think I remember there was a tweet ages ago, I think it might have been from Robert Shrimsey of the FT about market volatility. And saying, well, like, welcome to life in an emerging market. And there is this idea that actually there is this sort of weird sense of pause because we just don't know what the shape of our economy looks like. We just don't know the impact of things. The one thing that, you know, all these certainties that we've had in British policymaking for decades are now completely up in the air. So, of course, you can't make 
you can't make plans. I mean, you know, what you'd really ideally want is a very quick Brexit so that everybody knows what's going to happen. But it turns out that actually, we do, obviously we don't want that because it would be that would be the cliff edge and everyone wants a transition deal. But for all that transition deal makes economic sense, it also does increase the amount of time where you just don't know the staffing problems the NHS is going to have, for example. That was what I felt was the kind of thing that really rode over everything in, in Tory party conference was this sense of like, who knows where we'll be in two years' time. But they weirdly, they, they, they basically have to be like, who knows, but it will be better. Yeah. And that is their kind of, their big problem is not only are they can they are they not allowed to conceive of the idea Brexit won't be a success, they're not even really allowed to talk about the electoral problem that some voters, some of whom voted for the Tories in 2015, don't think it will be a success. And that creates problems for their uh, coalition. I think, you know, yeah, the, the big kind of question with actually a lot of the sort of is this stuff government ready is like Labour, if it gets into power at the next election, which obviously I... As, as you know, I think is fairly likely for a variety of reasons, is going to inherit a civil service which ought to have been staffed up to deal with the demands of Brexit and won't have been. It does feel quite similar to the 74, 79 government in some ways, and you kind of inherit a like, oh, you. so it turns out in the economy uh, we've actually massively overheated it. Good luck, guys. And, yeah, so it'll be... It won't be fun. It'll be literally the opposite of fun. Yeah. Much like going to party conferences, it'll be the opposite of fun. been listening to the new statesman podcast with me helen lewis and my co-host stephen bush we're recorded by india book and produced by caroline crampton our theme music is devil with the devil by the underscore orchestra licensed under creative commons and now a special exclusive excerpt from our sister podcast the back half So for this week's non-anniversary, which, as I'm sure you know by now, is a non-anniversary of a non-culturally significant event, we're going to briefly talk about the Garbage Pail Kids, which launched in 1985, so that's 32 years ago. And there's a documentary called 30 Years of Garbage out now. I'm not quite sure what happened to those intervening two years. But <laughs> maybe it took that long to get funded. I think, it's a, I think it's a crowdfunded film. If you don't know, these were cards, like baseball cards, launched by Tops, an American company. They were aimed at kids as a sort of playground thing. And they were just sort of a series of really kind of horrific images. Based on the Cabbage Patch Kids, obviously, um, they were sued by Cabbage Patch for their rip-offs, settled out of court, I think. They're a very simple concept. They're basically a load of sort of grotesque-looking children that had a limited number of easily illustrated bodily functions to explore. Tops were interested in vomit, hairiness and methane and, you know, farting and things like that. I didn't have any because I was a bit too young, but there was this boy that I was sort of in awe of, a family friend who had them. And I distinctly remember watching him sort through his Garbage Pail Kids cards while he was eating Twix with Hubba Bubba squirted on top of it. So he was eating bubble gum and chocolate together and he was sorting through his garbage pail kids. That's quite a garbage pail thing to do. Exactly. And the ones I remember particularly, um, as I say, the themes were not that varied. There was Richie Wretch, who was vomiting, and there was Upchuck, who was vomiting. vomiting. (laughs) And there was also Overflow, who was basically just a giant baby that's filled its nappy and it had lots of liquid coming out the side. There was Bloated Blair whose face was very fat and looked a bit like an ass. Um, And there was this very, very unpolitically correct one called Armpit Brit, and she just happened to have hairy armpits. (laughs)
And then, weirdly enough, there's one called Babbling Brook, who was just on the phone a lot. <laughs> I think maybe children of our generation could be divided into those who had garbage pail kids and those who didn't. I certainly wasn't allowed. Did them. you ever see them? Yeah, I had a friend, Mark, who had them, but I, there's no way I would have been allowed them. Would, were, you, would you have been allowed to eat Twix with bubblegum on it? It wouldn't have occurred to me. He had to swallow the bubblegum. That was the amazing The most thing. elaborate confections I prepared were based on things eaten in Calvin and Hobbes cartoons. Mm where he kind of creates these enormous sandwiches. Oh, yeah, so you did that. So a sandwich with everything you could have in the sandwich with 12 slices of bread, yeah. But the claim for sort of highbrow appreciation for Garbage Pail Kids is that they were created by Art Spiegelman, who went on to be kind of the premier graphic novelist. He wrote this book, Mouse, about the Holocaust in which the cats are the Nazis and the mice are the Jews. And... It's extraordinary to think that he was in this tiny room coming up with this stuff, working for Tops, while at the same time preparing the first volume of Mouse for publication. <laughs> and he said he was really pissed off that Tops didn't want to credit any of the creators, presumably so that they could just hire other people and it wouldn't kind of have any real ownership to it. And Spiegelman was really pissed off by this. But then this sort of highbrow literary publisher, Pantheon, who are about to publish Mouse, were kind of so relieved that Spiegelman's name was <laughs> not attached the creators to this. of yeah, Garbage Pail Kids. <laughs> comes an award-winning, powerfully moving, you know, symbolically rich work about the Holocaust. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> From the creator it. of Overflow yeah. and Upchuck. So happy non-anniversary Garbage Pail Kids. <laughs>